So I'm just going to read um, this is the last of the, the letters to the churches from Revelation chapter 3 and reading from verse 14. So that's Revelation 3 from verse 14. And we read, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and wear white and have white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we want to pray for understanding of your word. We want to pray for a willing spirit that we may ready, be ready to obey the truths that apply to our lives. Be with us now and speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Some time ago, I heard the, the story of a visiting preacher who, feeling that the, the service hadn't gone too well, burst into the vestry and flung his sermon notes down on the desk. Today, he stormed at the duty elder there, I feel I have preached to a congregation of donkeys. Oh, was the elder's response. So that's why you kept on calling them beloved brethren. Now, that's a story that, that brings us face to face with something, I think, that, that makes Christians feel uncomfortable. Rudeness, for we, we don't like people being rude or abrasive, do we? And, and rightly so. I mean, I, there are a lot of things I wish we were equally sensitive about, but rightly, Christians don't like rudeness. We don't like people being discourteous, insulting, insensitive. That being the case, then it's maybe hard to for us to hear, to imagine even, Jesus saying the words that he says here to the church at Laodicea. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. However, as I believe you'll see as we work our way through this passage, Jesus isn't here being rude. No, rather what he's doing is he's using picture language. He's using a, a life illustration. Strongly put, I grant you that, 
but necessarily so, because the point he is making is so important. However, what, above all, for me, saves this from any possible charge of rudeness is that it's said by Jesus. So, it's true. And it's said out of a heart of love. It's said with the desire, with the aim being, that these people, that this church might be won back to repentance. You see, Jesus isn't here writing this church off. No, He wants to win them back to Himself. Verse 19, He says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. But changing our our perspective just a little bit, uh, the question still has to be asked, how could a church be going so wrong? What could be so wrong about a church that Jesus could feel driven to use such strong language against it? I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, we have to ask this question, for God forbid that we ever find ourselves in the same situation as this church. So first then, what was their problem? What was the basic problem of this church at Laodicea? I believe that their problem was a problem of theology, a problem of their understanding of God and their understanding of God's Word that then, as it always does, affected the way that they lived, affected their Christian living, their deeds, their lifestyle as a whole. You see, you sometimes hear people say that theology, understanding God, Bible study, understanding the Word of God, that these things aren't really that important. What really matters is having a living, personal, heart relationship with God. That what really matters is doing a, is living a good life, living a life that, that brings credit to God. Now, what I want to say to you tonight is that it's not a matter, I believe, of a choice. Now, both of these are important, and both of these belong together, theology and experience, and try and separate the one from the other, and it's like trying to fly a plane with only one wing. It's bound to end in disaster. For separate theology, separate Bible study from a living experience of the Lord, from seeking day by day to actually meet with God, do that and you'll end up with a Christianity that's dull and dry and dead. But to the other side, separate off a relationship with Him from a study of His Word, from an attempt to grasp and and then to hold on to the essentials of our faith. And I tell you, do that, and we can so easily be sidelined and deceived and misled. And it it would seem that that something here of this nature had happened to the church at Laodicea. And almost certainly, the the indicators are that, that they'd fallen prey here to the same error as the church at Colossae, their their neighboring church that was a mere 10 miles away, whose problems are are highlighted by Paul in his letter to the Colossians. And basically what it seems that this problem was, was that they had been persuaded by false teachers, persuaded that Jesus was just a Son of God, that He was just one of a, a number of 
intermediaries of a number of possible options who could kind of breach, build, sorry, bridge the gap between God and mankind, and who so could lead men and women into a deeper experience of God. Now, the fact that this was the problem here at Laodicea is, uh, I think, I believe, made very clear. I'm going to throw that behind me casually. Was made very clear. Because Elaine made me aware that this happened, and now I can't help but see this thing dangling down. We'll go back. Is, I believe, made very clear by the, the fact that this is the only church out of the seven churches that in the opening words doesn't refer back to the opening vision of Christ given in Revelation 1, 12 to 20. This is the only one that doesn't refer back to that. So I think that tells us then that John is saying something very significant in these verses. And then as we look at the actual words that he uses, well, it's not too difficult, I don't believe, to pick out in, in specific terms just what he's actually trying to say, what he's trying to get across. Verse 14, he says, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Because that phrase, the, the ruler of all creation, which is incidentally very much a parallel of, of Colossians 1.15, the firstborn of all creation, what that's designed to get across is that Jesus Christ is Lord over all that He's made. And He's far above any other force, spiritual or otherwise, any other being, that He's not one of many, or He's not even one of several, but rather that He is unique and He is supreme. And Jesus is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Well, the meaning of Amen is basically faithful and true, with perhaps just a, an add of reliability, an added dash of reliability, of constancy. And, and so, you see, what's being said there then is that Jesus can be trusted to hold on to His Word and to be faithful to His people in a way that the church at Laodicea has failed to be faithful to Him. But you see, their failure to hold on to what was true in theology, their failure to hold on to what was true about their understanding of Jesus definitely did affect their lifestyle, affect their deeds, the way that they lived. But you see, it goes on to, to say here in verse 15, what it goes on to say is, I know your deeds. That's what he says. I know that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, what this is referring to here is an actual real-life problem that they had in Laodicea. For Laodicea was a very wealthy city. And because of that, it, it was a city that had a, a continually growing population. People were being drawn in to try to go into the city and try to get a share of their wealth. And what happened practically was that this then created a problem because their water supply could not satisfy the increased demands that were being made of it. So what they did in the 
archaeological evidence backs this up, demonstrates this, is they, they ran an aqueduct from a, from a supply six months south of them, an aqueduct from the hot springs of Denizli, five miles south. Now, you see, the way that that, that, that aqueduct was constructed means that the water must still have been warm by the time it got to them. And tests that have been done on the, the stones of this aqueduct show that in addition to this, this water was absolutely chock full of chalk and various minerals. It must have tasted absolutely disgusting. Something then that is suggested here you would more than likely want to spit out rather than drink with any kind of pleasure. But you see, this is, this is often, this is usually seen as a condemnation of lukewarmness, isn't it? That's the way we usually see it. Suggesting then that the hot enthusiasm and, and cold resistance are, are both preferable to Christ than half-heartedness, than lukewarmness. I, I'm not convinced that that is actually what Jesus is really getting at. In fact, I'm not convinced that it's actually true, that cold disinterest in Christ is better than half-heartedness. I'm not convinced, for both are bad, but, but surely, if anything, being cold, being totally switched off and disinterested is worse than being half-hearted. Because that maybe might suggest that there's at least something there to be worked with, something that you might spark to life. But I believe if you look at what Jesus actually does say here, at what he says, then it's clear that what he's getting at isn't their attitudes, their half-heartedness, their coldness, or whatever. Rather, it is their deeds that he's getting at. It's the way they are living. Because what does it say? In verse 15, it says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. You see, it's that just as their city has got no water which is healthy and satisfying, so the way of life, the deeds of the Laodicean church, are neither healthy nor satisfying to Christ. That in fact, the effect of the way that they are living on Christ is like the effect of the city's water supply on them day by day. It makes him sick as it made them sick. That then, I believe, is their basic problem. That for some reason they'd begun to undervalue theology, understanding, and all that surrounded that. And so because of this, they had been deceived. This then inevitably had affected their way of life, it had affected their Christian lifestyle, it had affected their deeds. That's their, their basic problem, but we're going to move on now and unpack that basic problem just a little bit more by looking at the nature of their problem. And that is really at the way that this basic problem actually expressed itself in their life. Now, the the method that's used here to uncover this in, in Revelation is not surprisingly pretty clever because here three things are taken, three things that were very much part of the expected day-by-day -day life experience of the Laodiceans. And John, 
guided by the Spirit, speaking the words of Christ, uses these things to illustrate three different dimensions, aspects to their spiritual problem. And what we're going to do is look at each one, and then at the way that Christ suggests by repentance, each of them should be dealt with. With the key verse, if you like, that links all this being at verse 17, where it says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, pure, blind, and naked. First then, was their wealth. For as we've already said, Laodicea was a very wealthy city. And the comments that are made here leave no room for doubt that this church was in turn a very wealthy church. For it was the, the banking center for the region. And just to give you an idea of the kind of wealth they had, when in AD 60 an earthquake destroyed much of the city of Laodicea, the people then rebuilt it using their own resources. They refused the usual offer of help from Rome and said, no, we want to do it all by ourselves. With one wealthy citizen paying for a, a huge new stadium to host their, their famous games, gladiators, animals, everything you want. And another citizen, and just listen to this, we think they were backward and we are advanced. Another citizen paid for the heating of covered walkways through the city and to lay on hot piped oil for massaging at the public bath. Sounds great. Eh? They don't have that in the Hamilton uh, swimming pool. But So it's not too hard for us, I don't think, to, to imagine what, what happened then to the Laodicean church. It's not too difficult for us to imagine that because the numbing effect of wealth and the spiritual life are to be seen all around us, aren't they, in the church of today. That is, if you're going to be able to afford your daily bread, then why bother praying for it or even giving thanks for it? Yes, and if because we've neglected our spiritual life, we've lost then that sense of God's specialness and uniqueness, well, then isn't it natural to rely on our bank account rather than on the Lord for day-to-day -day living? You see, it's so easy for money to become the basis of our security, rather than a relationship with the living God. Oh, God's there. He's, okay, He's there for the emergencies. God's there when we need Him and we can't buy our way out of it. But our life isn't really sometimes based on that relationship with Him. Now, of course, poverty for its own sake is not a virtue. And there are many examples of poor people who are more materialistic even than the rich in their covetousness. And equally, as well as this, there are many rich people, people who are wealthy, who hold lightly to their wealth and who use their wealth as a resource for the kingdom of God. I think what's interesting here, though, is the way that Jesus proposes to deal with this problem. This problem of a church a people overly reliant on their wealth, on their own resources, and sitting back in self-indulgence while the world around goes literally to hell. 
That is that, that after they repent, they're told in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. Get that? You see, what's been said there? After they've repented, what that's saying is God is going to put them through trials. Trials that will test and trials that will refine them. Trials that will see if they really have actually turned their back on trusting in their riches. Trials that will give them another opportunity to to turn to Him. So that finally, they might become truly rich, spiritually rich. But it's interesting, isn't it, that this happens after they repented. For our thinking would usually, I think, seem to be, certainly for me it would be, that repentance, that that getting right with God, well, that should lead at least to us having a nice warm feeling inside. And at the most, if anything else should happen on the back of this, well, it'll just be about things going especially well for us, as God will be taking good care of us because we're His friends again. We'll be blessed by God. And if this doesn't happen to happen. See, if we repent and far from things going well for us, things maybe start going badly. Well, at that point, we'd be inclined to feel let down by God, wouldn't we? We'd be inclined to, to blame God. You know, how could God let this happen to me? I'm back in relationship with Him. I'm ready to serve Him. How can God let this happen? I want to say to you, wait. Think a minute. Repentance is about us turning from sin back to God. Repentance is about us determining to seek more to walk in His ways and to seek to, more, to reflect more of Him in our character. That's repentance. Well, if as a part of this, God decides that the foundations of our life need to be tested, if He decides that some of the dross in our life has to be burnt away, then I don't know, if we're not ready for that, if we're not ready to pay that price to walk with Him, then doesn't it at least have to be questioned if we've really understood what repentance actually means, if in fact we really have repented? Another important fact about Laodicea that's, I believe, relevant here is that it was famous as a center of medical excellence, particularly in relation to the treatment of conditions affecting the eye. Apparently, they marketed and sold, and I'm sure again greatly increased their wealth, an eye ointment that contained among its different ingredients zinc and various zinc compounds, which are still used today in some eye treatments. It was like the kind of Boots HQ of the ancient world. And you can see, can you not? I'm sure you can, the irony in what Jesus is saying here. That despite living in a city which claimed to be able to cure blindness, yet this church is in fact blind in the most important way of all. It is blind to their own spiritual blindness. And so it needs to buy from Christ, verse 18, salve to put on your eyes 
so that you can see. Now, when Jesus talks about the Laodiceans' blindness here, I'm sure he's talking in the main primarily about their blindness to their own true spiritual state. But you know, I believe that this blindness may well have revealed itself in other ways as well. Just one example. You never ever hear in the New Testament of this wealthy church at Laodicea being at the forefront in raising funds for the many needy churches all around them, affected by famine, disaster, etc. Now, they must have known what was going on because they lived on a trade route and there'd be travelers continuously passing through. They would know, but they showed no signs of sympathizing with them. Indeed, Maybe they even took their own wealth as a sign of God's favor and suspected that if other Christians suffered, hey, it was probably their fault. But isn't it so easy to become spiritually blind, to become blind to our own need, to become blind to where we really are spiritually? Maybe to remember ourselves with the zeal that we once had when we first were converted and came to the Lord, and to be ready to accept ourselves as we are now, as acceptable to God, but to fail to see that in reality we've wandered far from a truly vibrant relationship and a real living trust in God. And equally, it is so easy to become blind to Christ's purposes, to get so caught up in our own selfish little world that we cannot even begin to see what Jesus wants us to do. As one writer I read on this passage, as he said, there are many churches who are pleased with their own performance, but who have little practical concern for the struggling church three miles away. And there are many who give minimal support to the church in other countries. They may support a missionary working, say, in Brazil, but they've got no sense of being bound in Christian fellowship with churches in Brazil or any other part of the world and with Brazilian believers. The only cure for this is by, again, by repentance, putting ourselves in that place where Jesus Christ can apply the anointment of His healing that we might see, that we might see again, maybe see for the first time through His eyes. See who we really are and where we actually are spiritually. Finally here, the, the church in Laodicea was famous also for its woolen products. They produced really, I suppose, the the cashmere, if you like, of their day. Expensive garments that were widely sought after. Everybody wanted the jumper from Laodicea for Christmas. Maybe not, but anyway. So, and yet despite it all we're told here, this is what the Lord says, they are naked. And need to, verse 18, buy white clothes to wear. Now, White clothes basically are the clothes that are worn by the martyrs. For example, in Revelation 6 verse 11, and by the righteous in Revelation 19, 6 to 8. So what then this fundamentally is speaking of here is of people who are clothed in the character and righteousness 
of Jesus. And what John is getting at here is that these Laodicean Christians, they need to move from the place where they're clothed in their pride and their own sense of self-sufficiency. They need to move to the place where they are instead clothed in the character. That is in the love, in the holiness, in the righteousness, and we could go on, of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a challenge, though? It's a challenge to me. That we are naked when we don't wear the character of Jesus. Isn't that a challenge to us personally? Isn't that a challenge to the church of today? Let me just share with you, I've done this a few times over the last two or three weeks, but let me just share some very helpful, I think, practical observations from Stephen Travis. That is, that Jesus' character is marked by self-giving. The church today is sometimes marked by self-preservation. Jesus is always loving. The church too often bickers over petty things. Jesus gets His hand dirty. He gets Him where the need and the sin is. Too often the church likes to keep their hands clean. Jesus accepts suffering as the way to bring life to others. The church wants life, but prefers to avoid the suffering. Jesus reflects the character of God. The church too often reflects simply the character of the society where it's placed. Let me finish now with just a, a word about the repentance that again and again has, has been a, is a recurring theme throughout this, this passage, this section. The repentance that is absolutely essential if Jesus is to come and do any kind of restoring work among His people. And, and it's, it's tied in with the famous invitation of Jesus in verse 20. That famous invitation, words we've heard so many times, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, many times have you heard that at an evangelistic meeting? But you see, the facts are, though, that this isn't actually an evangelistic invitation. It doesn't bother me too much when it's used in that way because that does reflect other wider, clear biblical teaching. But when you really look at this, what's said here, this isn't about Jesus coming to a non-Christian and offering new life. No, this is about Jesus coming to a church and offering to renew its life. And that's really what I want to finish with now that if you've seen anything of yourself or anything of the church or of this church in what's been said tonight, then please do not despair. Don't think that you're lost and reprehensible or that we're all hopeless and there's no chance. I would say instead, focus on what's central to this passage, that God's forgiveness, that renewal in Jesus is always only one true prayer of repentance away.
listen again, to the Word of God, to the voice of Jesus Christ, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Let's just pray together. Father, we just rejoice tonight that that is the spiritual reality. That maybe tonight we kind of feel burdened and we feel that this is me. I'm falling down in these areas. I'm not full of that zeal that I should be. I'm not seeing things the way I should see them. I'm not clothed in that character of Christ. And we're aware of how far short we fall. And Lord, that's where the devil wants to keep us. Down in the dumps. But Father, you want to lift us up. You want us to truly repent and to turn to you. And you promise that as we do that, that you will welcome us. That we will be again in true fellowship with you. And that you will use us once more. Lord, help us to know tonight that wherever we're at in our life at this moment, that we're only one real prayer of repentance away from renewed fellowship with you. Lord, help us to see and help us to take hold of all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.